Good morning, Bethany. Uh, this morning we have a very long chapter to read through, so no snoring allowed. Um, <laughs> Genesis 41, if you'll turn there with me. So after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. 
The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. I knew that was going to happen. Sorry. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be known in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Still awake? This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in gar garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, I guess, the daughter of Potiphar priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to them. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, 
and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pam, can I go home now? <laughs> well, you might be wondering, um, why, why, why give five minutes of your service to read through the verses like that? Why do we do that here? I'll tell you why. That five minutes was the most important five minutes of your day. And if you're not sure about that or you don't believe that, examine the, the place of the Word of God in your life. The Word of God is what we center around. We read these stories because it not only honors God, but it, it impacts our life, and it is why we're here. And if it wasn't for that Word, I would really wouldn't have anything to say to you. It is His Word that we honor, value, and cherish because it reveals to us the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we read it, even sometimes those long, hard passages. So thanks for reading, Pam. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you guys. I wasn't sure I was going to be here this week. I was so sick this week. Anybody, anybody have the nasty cold that's not COVID, but a bad, bad cold? Anybody in here? A couple of you? Okay, I see you guys waving hands. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I think I took enough DayQuil to power a small engine plane um, this week. So if I'm a little foggy, or I've already probably mixed up some words, you're like, what's up with him today? That's it. I was not sure I was going to be here today, but I am, thanks to the grace of God and, and the prayers of a friend. And so, yeah, appreciate that. Well, what began as a teenage dream or dreams that Joseph shared with his family that predicted that he would, that all, they would all bow to him, today in chapter 41, they begin to possibly become a reality. As Joseph goes from the pit of prison to the height of Egyptian power in one day in chapter 41, we begin to see this, this actually could become a reality. But in all this narrative and all these characters speaking and the story and all the drama, God is speaking too. And he's asserting in this story and loudly proclaiming that he is sovereign over all things, everything. In Joseph and his actions, God is, what he's doing today is confronting the world by displaying that only his power can bring life to the world, God's power. This morning we're going to see this in Jesus too, this truth that only he can bring life to the world, and this table represents that, the divine work of Jesus, the God-man to bring life to the world. It's a similar theme in our Joseph story and in the cross. So we're going to look today at these two twin truths today of God's sovereignty on the one hand and our human responsibility on the other as we look at chapter 41. So grab your outline, just three points there for you today as we work through this story. But let's start with this big, big, big idea that God is sovereign over nations and their rulers. And so because of that, in light of that, Joseph confronts the world with God. Those things go together. As you fill in that 
first one there, for those of you that like outlines, like to write notes, I want to define a couple terms for us to start with. They're going to help us out immediately today. And, and here they are. They're not in your notes, but just to, so we're all on the same page of what we're talking about today, here's just some really simple definition, how we define God's sovereignty and providence. They're really two sides of the same coin. But God's sovereignty is the rule and reign of God over all things. You can find it on every page of the Bible. God's providence, then, is connected to his sovereignty. It's, it's his hidden working out in the world and history and lives of all the things he wants to happen or ordains or, at the, at the bare minimum, permits to happen. They go together, his sovereignty and providence, and almost are more clear in this story than almost any story in the Bible, although, as I said, it's on every page. Yeah, so as we, as we unpack this story, there's no way to understand it or our lives or God's current working in the world without understanding these truths. The world cannot make sense. Remember now, Joseph has been left languishing in prison for two years after interpreting the cupbearer's dream and the baker. You remember that? as David preached on that so well uh, last week. And Joseph said to him as he left the cupbearer, when you're restored to your place of influence, please remember me. But he didn't until this occasion. And what was this occasion? What's going on in the story and history, in literal history at this time? The power structures of the world had been turned upside down, totally upside down. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt at this time, has these God-given dreams that absolutely terrify him, totally frighten him. Now, Pharaoh himself would have been thought of as somewhat godlike in their culture, as a god, or at least on the fringes of divinity and the, and, the, and the crossover between earth and the heavens. And now Pharaoh himself has these dreams come to him that absolutely, as we said, terrify him. And, and what they've done is they've, they've taken all his knowledge, all his initiative, all his power, and all his control and pulled it from him. All the plates he thought he was able to spin, he now can't keep spinning. Here's the key verse, verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So the best and brightest are, are gathered together, is what it says he, do, he did here. Like, um, like some think tank, right? Or, or some TED talk where all the smart people get together and there's some talk. Or, or have you ever seen Apple Computer do this grand rollout and all these smart people are there uh, giving out all these products, and, or, or, or you see it in the news, the CDC thinks we're going to come together, we're going to combat this pandemic, we're bringing together the best and the brightest, and they're helpless. Here, Pharaoh's best have nothing for him. They've got nothing. Imagine how Pharaoh, the most powerful leader, would have felt in this moment, the one who is supposed to have it all together, crippled, humbled, helpless. This is a God on earth to them. To add to it now, we're talking about the power structures being turned upside down here. To add to it now, the Nile River that was in these dreams was symbolic and literally a source of Egypt's life. When there was drought and famine in other places, guess what? The Nile still tended to provide life and food for the Egyptians. 
And now in this dream, these nightmare freakish cows are eating the healthy cows that are coming out of the Nile. Without the Nile, Pharaoh can't guarantee life for his people. And if you call yourself God, that's pretty important, isn't it? He can't guarantee life for his people. The power structure of this world is being turned upside down. It's a glaring sign in these dreams that the empire doesn't have the power of life in and of itself. And Pharaoh doesn't too. Pharaoh is helpless. Pharaoh is a fraud. Someone else is in control. We've seen this in other places. As Herod was helpless in the time of Jesus' birth, when he wanted to kill the baby Jesus, do you remember that? But he had no control over the future. How about Pilate at the end of Jesus' life? Has no power, but had, as Jesus said to him, Pilate, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given from above. And so we see here God here in Joseph's life asserting himself onto the world stage, as if he needed to, <laughs> to proclaim that he is sovereign over nations, over rulers, as this Hebrew prisoner now. This slave will rise to prominence overnight and he will speak about the future and what the future will hold. Here's a few verses to help us see stated in other places in the Bible. What's implicit in this story is that God rules over Egypt even when a pagan god king thinks he does. Take a look at some verses. Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Let these sink in today. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness in comparison to him. Here's a long one, Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Here's a couple more short ones for you. He makes nations great. Pharaoh does? No, God, he makes nations great. And he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. One more for you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Here's the explicit way the world works. On the surface, many times, doesn't it, it doesn't look like that, does it? When we see right now even nations battling and warring in our earth world trying to figure out what we do, kingdoms come, kingdoms go, leaders rise on prominence, they fall away. Scripture is clear. Over and over, God is sovereign over the nations of the world. He is king. He rules and reigns when it looks like human power and ingenuity is the primary cause. Ultimately, working behind the scene is always God and his providence. Let that give you comfort this morning. Let that give you comfort. Not the headlines. Surely not the headlines. Let that give you comfort this morning. 
as we live in these uncertain realities or of your life even, not national, now personal level. Let that give you comfort. If God can manage the nations of the world, can he take care of your calendar? Yeah. Can he take care of your life? Can he take care of your children where you worry? God is working in the big things, nations, and the little things. So, so when we hear those truths, we can just hear those and let them kind of wash over us. Oh, yeah, okay, okay yeah, I get that. But how, let it work its way down into your daily life, your faith, your obedience, your trust, your prayer life, rested on the character of a sovereign God who rules over all. Because if you don't, if you don't believe this and live this way, when life shakes you up, where is your God? Where is he? Is he twiddling his thumbs? He's not sovereign over all? Is he relieving himself like I, I, Elijah mocked the followers of Baal? Is your God just relieving himself? Where is he? And what will happen to your faith if you don't live it this way or have it be informed by the, these truths this way? What will happen to your faith when trials come and you can't explain them? I love this Elizabeth Elliot quote I saw this week. If your faith rests in your idea of how God is supposed to answer your prayers, then that kind of faith is very shaky and bound to be demolished when the storms of life hit. But if your faith rests on the character of him who is the eternal I am, think sovereign God there, then that kind of faith is rugged and will endure. Don't you want a rugged faith? I love that phrase. I need a rugged, or let's call it gritty faith. Give me a gritty, rugged faith. That's what I want. Because life shakes up. My life was shooken up this week and in bed, didn't know if I was even gonna be here. I want a rugged, gritty faith because I've got a rugged, gritty God that's sovereign over all. We need an eternal God, the great I am, that kind of faith. We need a sovereign over king and nations kind of faith. I mean, how could Joseph do what he's about to do without that kind of faith? Think about it. He's going to enter the throne room of what they thought was God on earth. The storms of life had clearly hit Joseph now as he transferred back to the story. And from his perspective, our perspective, how easy it is for him to think or us, well, God's forgotten me. I'm in prison for 10, 11 years. The, two years ago, I asked this guy to get me out and he's gone. That must be it. I must have really ticked God off this time. Look how things are going. The alternative is this, rugged faith that will endure to stand strong in faith as Joseph did. So what does he do? He comes and he, he confronts the world with God. Because the truth that God is sovereign over the nations, he comes and confronts the world with, uh, with God in verses 9 through 32. Back to our story, the cupbearer that just happens to forget Joseph on his initial release, but now, just now, when Pharaoh's at his lowest and Joseph is at his lowest, he happens to remember. And Joseph is swooped from the prison. Look at verses 14 and 15 again with me. We're obviously not going to read all 57 again today. <laughs> Look at 14 and 15 with me. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself, interesting, and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. 
I've heard it said that you, uh, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Well, what's Joseph doing here first? He's swooped out of this pit, and he cleans himself up. I mean, really, that's like your thought. Like, he takes some time. He cleans himself up. What does he do? He shaves, it says. He changes clothes there. And what we're getting at there is a picture that he's making himself look more Egyptian before he goes before uh, Pharaoh. Hebrews had beards. Egyptians did not. He, he shaves. He gets cleaned up. He probably puts on some attire of the, of the empire. He's Egyptianizing himself before he goes before Pharaoh. It's actually really wise and a little detail there that's easy to miss. He's contextualizing himself to stand before Pharaoh. Here's what that means. The Hebrew culture in that moment didn't have to be the primary, on the primary stage in that moment. In some ways, he walked away from it. He shaved, he changed his clothes. And I think so too, the Christian culture now, not Christianity, the Christian culture doesn't have to have the primary place on the world stage to make an impact. Let me explain that a little bit. The Christian culture, as the Hebrew culture here, kind of took a back seat. The truth didn't, but the cultural accoutrements and the out, outward signs of it did, in some wisdom, actually. The same way, our Christian culture doesn't have to have the primary place on the world stage, whether that's in a political manifestation to make a difference. It doesn't. Because Hebrew culture sure didn't hear, Joseph kind of let some of it go. I mean, look at Joseph when he rises to ascendancy now. All these details are there for a reason. At the end of the story, he's given an Egyptian name. He's given Egyptian transportation. He's given an Egyptian priest wife. He's given the Egyptian seal of approval, and God still uses him mightily. What's more important in this moment? It's his faithfulness. It's what's going on here. Not all the outward stuff that made him look like the best Hebrew. No, 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 no. He looked like an Egyptian. What mattered in that moment was his faithfulness on that world stage. It's way more important that you and I have an eternal ballast like Joseph that was fixed on God in his heart than look the part. Because Joseph let it go. Whatever that part may be or whatever it might look like. And so in our church context, we should hold much more loosely those cultural trappings of our tribe. Things that maybe we've added in that might be extra biblical or at the very least there should be some Christian freedom in. And usually those things, we're not going to veer off into this, but usually those things center on policy and politics, don't they? If you're a good Christian, you will hold to this, this, and this. Now, of course, we don't want to deter, detract, or go away from any of the Bible's morals, values, things that God say are right. But we just need to be careful. That's what I'm saying. Careful we don't write off people when they don't tick every cultural box. Because any other Hebrew that would look at Joseph, if they were to travel from afar, would say, that man has left God. Look at him. That man has totally left God. But do you know what was going on in his faith? The ballast of his heart was much more important in that moment than some of those cultural trappings. 
means we need to be careful. It also means we can engage the world a bit more without being afraid of being too closely associated with those not like us. It means we may actually lose the culture war entirely and still realize God is on the throne and he's already won the greater battle. That's what this means. That we may lose it entirely. The Christian culture is losing its ground. Culture now. The externals of what it looks like. I'm not talking about the heart of the gospel and what we believe and hold to. We know that. It's being pulled back from the world stage, much like Joseph shaved his beard and changed his clothes. That war might be lost. But that doesn't mean the greater battle is lost. It's already won. It also means you don't have to fret. We don't have to fret. Joseph doesn't fret. By all appearances, would you say he's alone? Yeah. By all appearances, he's absolutely alone. He's standing in Egypt, hundreds of miles from his home, being a prisoner forever, and he doesn't fret. As I said, I I was sick in bed this week, and as I didn't know if I was going to be here today, and it was a little reminder of one of my daughters this week in a card that she wrote and left next to me as I was in bed. She just dropped it next to me, and here's what it said. You're not alone. Even with the misspelling or the missing punctuation. You're not alone. You are not alone. It it, it might feel like that. It might look like that. Joseph looked absolutely alone, totally by himself. You're not alone. Even when you are alone in a room by yourself, (laughs) you're not alone. Here Joseph stands up to the world. He lets go of some of the frivolous things, the beard, the clothes. He just stands up to the world and check out how theocentric, God-centered his view is here. Now, in every context, he's standing in front of Pharaoh, the God of their culture. Here's a few of the verses. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do, Pharaoh. Again, it's beginning, middle, and end of his speech. Here's the middle. It's as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Here was the end of his speech. Beginning, middle, end, God. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. The title of our sermon. And God will shortly bring it about. Look, Pharaoh. Famine is coming and God is in control here. He gives answers, not me. And God has given these dreams and it is fixed. God is going to do what he's going to do and there is nothing you can do, Pharaoh. You're a helpless man. God is in control. Pharaoh believes he's a God. And this is how Joseph enters his throne room? Think about that. What kind of courage and faith in the sovereignty of God that would take? What would the temptation have been for you and I? And probably was for Joseph. Maybe the temptation would be to be self-serving. Uh, yeah, I can tell you your dream. What, what's in it for me? Am I out of jail? Are things going to go good for me? Are you going to lop my head off too? Or maybe just tell Pharaoh what he wants to hear. Not Joseph. He knows he is not alone on that world stage. You're not alone. And so he speaks for God. 
I love what Walter Brueggemann said about this moment. He said, the future in Egypt does not depend upon Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. No wonder a cool speech is made by Joseph. He's calmly announced to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. It's settled and what will happen will happen. The king is helpless in the face of God's coming future. This is a bold, risky message to deliver. Kings don't make history. Presidents don't make history. Powerful pundits on YouTube do not make history. They all serve history, and they will be accountable to God for their actions. He is the God over history. He's the God of this world. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know I've got authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I'm in control here, Jesus. Pilate, am I standing before you? Or are you standing before me? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Can we live? Can you and I live? Can we live as people who proclaim God's truth, God's word, knowing you and I don't stand alone on the world stage? It was one of those four Ps. Remember back from that discipleship series we did? Proclamation of the word. Proclaiming God's word. It's only possible for Joseph because he knows and believes that God is sovereign over all, and so he confronts the world with the truth. That's why he can do it. Now, he could have left it there. Okay, Pharaoh, there's your interpretation. Uh, Can can I excuse myself to the annals of history and be on my way? No. Now that he's proclaimed reality, he tells Pharaoh, you better conform to it. Much too shorter points here to finish up. Here's our second one. God is sovereign over wisdom and nature. So Joseph confronts Pharaoh with this reality too, and he advises Pharaoh, you better conform to it. Not only is he sovereign over you, you you have no power here, Pharaoh. He's sovereign over wisdom and nature. So conform to it. Sometimes people who struggle with God's sovereignty will say, well, if God's in control of all things, then why does it matter what I do? Why does it matter? Or they say, you know, if, uh, sovereignty in, in, in salvation, those that will come to me, and they say, well, why share the gospel if God knows, or if God, you know, is sovereign over all that will come to him? Are we just puppets then? Or, or robots? If God is sovereign over all things and he's ordained all things? The Bible absolutely takes the view of God's uncompromised sovereignty over everything, including wisdom, including nature, as we're going to see in a minute. And it never once portrays us as less than responsible for our actions. It it shows both of those twin truths so clearly. It never lets us off the hook to laziness or passivity or resignation because God is sovereign. You, You never see that anywhere in the pages of scripture, nor do you see it ever mentioned that our choices don't have real meaning or impact, as if we were robots, You don't see that anywhere on the pages of Scripture. Joseph doesn't think that. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. So after laying out the reality and the truth of these dreams and who God is in control, it's the turning point of the story. It's the hinge. He says, therefore, we better conform to it now. 
If this is God's world and this is God's work and he's doing something, we better conform to it. We need a man who's discerning and wise. And he goes on to lay out this brilliantly wise, God-given plan, a a seven-year savings plan, you might call it. So when the famine comes, we'll be ready. It's actually quite the opposite. Because Joseph knows that God is sovereign over wisdom and nature itself, that the thing is fixed and is going to happen, hey, Pharaoh, we better plan. It's the exact opposite of resignation and defeatism. Because God is sovereign, because he can do things, because he uses us, we better get a plan. Here's a couple of verses to show us these truths that he is sovereign over nature and wisdom. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads a thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. First Corinthians, wisdom. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Pharaoh? Pilate? Herod? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What we've got here in Joseph and in these truths coming together, we've got the intervention here of God's divine sovereign, remember, control over all things, and human incarnational faith as Joseph lives out his faith in real time and acts coming together. The sovereign purposes of God to raise up Joseph so as to save his people. Remember the family line. This is Christ's family line. If they die, no Messiah. So his sovereign purpose to raise up Joseph is tied to the historical action of of Pharaoh and his choice of Joseph. The sovereign dream was necessary, but just as necessary was Joseph's action of obedience and Pharaoh's action too. And so we too are called by God to act in faith and obedience Many times when you cannot see the future in your life, you cannot know what will come, you don't know the outcome, it's in those moments that these truths will bolster that kind of gritty faith. And choose he does. Pharaoh's next move could have been what? Lift off Joseph's head too. And that would have meant for Joseph, he would have been instantly with God, But he doesn't choose that. And you've got to give Pharaoh a little credit here. He sees the wisdom. He sees the wise man who gave the wise plan and the interpretation of the dream. And he puts it into practice. Here's our third and final point today. Not only sovereign over nature and wisdom. And so he says, hey, Pharaoh, conform to it. Find a wise man. Here's what's coming. He's also sovereign over the future and life and death. And so what happens here? Joseph becomes the mediating source of God's life the world. Let's look at our final truth here today that's going to lead us to the table. Pharaoh says in verse 37, that sounds great. Where do we find this man? Because I don't want to go through that. He was standing right in front of them. He was standing right there. 
And so quickly in God's planning of Joseph's future, he's risen to second in command in Egypt. Can that happen any other way than than a powerful sovereign God? A foreigner from a different culture, a slave in the pit, and from one day to the next, he's second in command over Egypt. He's over all his house. If you caught it at the end of the passage, the word all is in there 20 times or something. Over all the house, all the people, all the land, all the things are put into his power. And he's quickly installed into power. The giver of dreams now, God is at work beginning to bring these dreams to pass. He's over all future life and death. Isaiah 46 points that out to us. Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I've spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. The thing is fixed. God will do this. God has brought this strange Hebrew now from a far country to be the wise, discerning, faithful follower who would become the mediator now of life for the world. Can you hear echoes of Genesis 3 there? We're still in Genesis. (laughs) Or Genesis 12, 3, sorry. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Egyptian records show twice that when the Nile failed, the famine was so bad they resulted to cannibalism. Remember, this is this pre-refrigeration days. Pre-Costco days where your one trip could survive you a month, right? This is pre-any of that. Cannibalism. But this was so severe, actually, that verse 57 says, all the earth, take a look at it, all the earth came to Egypt for food. Probably the surrounding known world at that time. Clearly, they weren't crossing continents. All the earth came to Egypt for food. But Joseph was ready to give life. Joseph had been directed by the sovereign hand of God to become the mediator of life now. He's the go-between for life. Without Joseph, we die or we eat each other and then die. He's the mediator of life. He doesn't let his success go to his head as a young man might with his otherworldly power and influence. We see that in the naming of his two sons, right? Yes, he has taken on all of the Egyptian culture and has, has done that maybe to, to fit in and contextualize, but what does he give them? Hebrew names. Oh, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, to give God that glory. Manasseh, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house, and Ephraim, for he was fruitful in this new land of affliction. God, Joseph understood that God controlled all of life every day, even day to day, to the bread that he ate and the bread he was going to give And he becomes the mediating source of God's blessing the entire world through his faithful obedience. How can we not see Jesus here? The culmination of God's sovereign plan and the incarnational faithful human obedience and action of Jesus. How can we not see them coming together in Joseph's life? Jesus uh, was constantly pointing to himself 
as the mediating source of God's blessing for the world. The mediating presence of God's blessing for the life of the world. And he, in the words he, he would teach, the healing he would do, the victory he would win, and the resurrection he would achieve, all of those things. I am the life of the world. He even went so far to connect the work he would do with sacrificial death in his body, with, with the bread of life. The bread of life. It was after he performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000, recorded in John 6 that Jesus taught the next day. Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world, all the world, is my flesh. Like Pharaoh, like those Jesus was teaching in John 6, the world is so accustomed to thinking it has all the answers, that it knows wisdom, that it knows reality. Trust technology, trust progress, trust money, trust leaders to deliver us from the problems of the world. And there are countless, countless pretend mediators in your life. I've got the answers. I've got this for you. I've got that for you who stand and say, I'll mediate the life of the world for you. But there was ever, ever only one who could actually say it and mean it. Jesus, my flesh, the bread of the life of the world, my flesh. Jesus Christ, the one who fully trusted the sovereign plan of God and entered a hostile foreign country to be raised from the pit to the height of power on a cross to become that mediating life of the world. Because it was in that death that he purchased the life of the world. Do you see our connection today? We're going to take some time to prepare for communion. But as we do that, I want to welcome our kids. They are watching in one of our Sunday school rooms to stream uh, communion, to watch it, and they're going to talk about it today after as we're wrapping up. Hi, kids. I hope you can see me. Maybe you could yell loud enough so we could hear you in here. Don't do that. Your teachers won't like that. But I'm so glad you're watching with us in there today. We, we want you to be part of what we're doing here and see and learn what happens in here sometimes even when you're not here. So we're going to take a moment. You kids can maybe pray there 